Uh, this morning we are uh, looking, continuing in our Advent sermon series uh, that I entitled Songs of Emmanuel's Incarnation, and we're looking at Luke chapter 1 still. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphones, you can be turning there. Might also be on the screen here in just a moment. Uh, but last week we started this sermon series looking at Mary's song, and we talked about the disruption of Emmanuel's incarnation. This morning we are going to be looking at Zachariah's song and the hope of the incarnation. And so if you are there now, follow along with me as I read from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. This is God's holy word. And his, Zachari- and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from all our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, he's talking about his son John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child, that is John, grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Again, this is God's holy word. Will you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, we do now ask that you would be present with us, however we find ourselves here this morning, whether we have come in this morning with great faith and joy in our hearts, or whether truth be told, we come in and we are we don't have that joy currently in our hearts. Life is a difficult season for us right now. And we're doing everything we can just to hold it together. Whether we come in here with great faith, whether we have walked with you for a long time, or whether we have not yet seen you as the one true Savior, the one Redeemer that we desperately need. Father, however we find ourselves here this morning, would you convince us that when you see us in all of our complexity, all of our brokenness, all of our sin, that when you see us there, your response is not to be aghast, but you actually move towards us in saving, redeeming love. Help us to see that you have actually done that through your son, Jesus Christ. And help us to see that anew through this passage, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
Well, this past week, my wife Jen and I celebrated our 28th wedding anniversary. 28, yes. Jen, did you hear that clapping? Uh, I actually, uh, some of you knew this, but uh, the rest of you didn't. I, I actually, for 36 hours, I was able to get out of Palm Bay and be in New York City celebrating with my wife, and I made it back. But I was surprised. My wife had a surprise waiting for me. The, actually, the guy that introduced us long, long time ago had surprised by coming into town, buying us tickets to Hamilton, and we got to celebrate our anniversary with him all together uh, uh, for, the, for the occasion. It was, a, it, was a, it was an amazing way to celebrate my anniversary. Jen and I met in 1993. Uh, I was a student at the University of Tennessee. Jen had just recently graduated from Clemson. She's a little older than I am. And she had come on to the UT campus as a RUF campus intern. And I was instantly attracted to Jen. And so I started trying to figure out all the ways I could be around Jen. And so uh, I even at some point started actually calling her. And then one one day I got a call from our campus minister. And he said, hey, John, we need to go get some coffee. We go and sit down at a table, and he says, um, he said, John, he said, uh, in our ministry, there are certain rules that we have, and one of them is that staff are not allowed to date students. So you need to forget about Jen West, move along, and go, and if you want to date someone, go find somebody else to date. <laughs> and I, this, you know, I'm a young college student. This is a new rule to me. And so I said, well, I mean, what does that mean? Like, when, could I, when can I date Jen? When could I date Jen? And I think, his, I think his response was just trying to end the conversation and leave that conversation behind. He simply said, listen, if you're still interested in a year from now, come back. We can have a conversation. Okay. That was January of my junior year. Over the next year, I, I went on a few dates. Jen actually dated somebody fairly seriously. But I drove my roommate absolutely nuts during that time because every time I would go on a date, I would come back and I would account to my roommate why that date, why that person was nothing like Jen West. And so I had to wait. (laughs) And so I waited for a year to the day. And I called my campus minister and asked if he'd go get coffee. We went back to the same coffee shop. The same table was taken. We were sitting next to it. And I simply said, do you remember about a year ago we were sitting right there? And that's all I got out of my mouth. And his jaw just drops and hits the floor. And he looked at me and he said, far be it from me to stand in the way of God's providence. If you're still interested at this point in Jen West, I'll give you my blessing to ask her out, but you have to keep it quiet. (laughs) And then he leaned in. (laughs) And he said, now, John, I I just told you that as your campus minister. As your friend, I'm going to tell you, she hasn't said a word about you over the last year. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. (sighs) Ah. Nevertheless, I got to ask her out. Our first date was the end of January. We were married by December 9th of that year. Now, there are very 
few things in my life <laughs> that I have had to wait for with such eager anticipation and expectation and just simply waiting to be able to ask Jen West out on a date. <laughs> Often things in life that you and I have to wait on are much harder to wait for and to wait on. Ordinarily, we just don't do waiting very well. And it's not simply because we would prefer instant gratification. Of course, that comes easier. But the harder part of waiting, I would suggest, is the way in which the length of waiting on something important to us to happen or to change in a fallen and broken world when so much around us remains not the way it's supposed to be, threatens our capacity to hold on to and maintain expectant hope. True hope can be a powerful, motivating fuel for our lives. But when our ability to hold on to hope is threatened... It can be a very devastating way to go through life. Zechariah most certainly must have known that feeling. <laughs> Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who Luke introduced us to prior to this song, were a couple who had no children. They were barren. And furthermore, Luke tells us they were advanced in years. In other words, they were past the point of having any reason to legitimately hope that that part of their experience in life might actually change. And in that day, as it still can be today, unfortunately, in addition to the pain of just not being able to have children when that is your heart's desire, to not have children was a socially and culturally humiliating situation. People made terrible assumptions about why others experienced the particular hardships that they did. And so the gossip about Zachariah and Elizabeth must have been scandalous and rampant. <laughs> I wonder what dark secret that couple is hiding <laughs> that has kept them from bearing children. But Luke actually notes earlier in his chapter that Zechariah and Elizabeth were people of character. <laughs> they were true followers of Yahweh. Not that they were morally perfect or without sin, of course, but they were trustworthy. They were faithful in their walk with God. And so therefore, their, their lack of being able to have children was not at all a curse by God, far from it. Nevertheless, I can imagine that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been tempted to lose hope. And they weren't alone at this time. You see, the way Luke recounts this part of redemptive history, Zechariah and Elizabeth, in their personal particular state, actually served as a microcosm, as a representative of the entire people of God at this point. You see, all of God's people had been doing some waiting. From the very beginning, God's intention was to 
dwell with his people and to be in the midst of his people as they made their way through their lives. He wanted his people to be so aware of his presence with them daily (laughs) that when they built the tabernacle, (laughs) that is the moving tent of God's home, God had them place it right in the very middle of camp so that all the other family's tents were faced towards God's tent, his tabernacle, so that when you woke in the morning, the first thing you saw when you left your tent was God's presence at his tabernacle. That tangible reality must have been a powerful, hope-inducing reminder first thing every morning for God's people when they woke up. To face the day. Later, once God's people were settled in the land, he had promised the temple was permanently constructed and designed to then be home to God's most acute presence on earth. It was the temple that was where heaven and earth met. But 400 years prior to Elizabeth and Zechariah, God's spirit and glory was actually visibly seen leaving the temple. For over 400 years now, God's people had neither visibly observed the presence of God nor heard from God through his prophets. Silence. For 400 years. God's people must certainly have been tempted to lose hope during this time. Years before the prophet Isaiah described them as a people walking in darkness. My guess is that all of us to one degree or another at some point in our lives, perhaps even right now, can relate to that feeling of walking in darkness. In darkness. It's a terribly difficult place to hold on to redemptive, expectant hope. But things are about to change. And Luke tells us that it's Zechariah who is the one to actually break the silence of 400 years as he speaks prophetically in this passage. You see, miraculously, God has given Zechariah a child, and that child, he is told, will be the one who will be the herald, the spokesman, the forerunner, the evangelist for Yahweh himself as God intends to finally return to his people. And so that's where we meet Zechariah. Here, breaking forth into song that's abounding in and oozing with hope in every line. You can hear the enthusiasm right off the bat in Zechariah's voice as he starts off in verse 48. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is Luke's term for God's return to be with his people, his visitation. He will use this language again. It'll show up again in Luke chapter 7. But our English word for visit... Does a poor job of expressing, in my opinion, what Zachariah is communicating here. You see, this is much more than simply a brief interaction. Like the way you and I might visit loved ones or family during the holidays. Or how we might visit someone 
in the hospital. Luke's emphasis in using this word is on the actual act of returning, coming back. God is coming back. God is returning, and this time with the ultimate purpose to now remain eternally with his people. It's very similar to John's word for to dwell, where in the first chapter of his gospel, he writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the same word for tabernacle. (laughs) That is, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Both Luke and John want us (laughs) to see and hear that God intends to return and be with his people for all eternity. This has been the ultimate goal all along since since our very first parents were exiled from the garden. It's continued to be the longing and goal that so many of the prophets spoke about. Even as Zechariah's forefathers had been exiled out of their own homeland, And even though many of them had returned after the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles, they were still ruthlessly ruled by a foreign power, the Romans, even while they were in their own land. But the promise had always been that Yahweh would one day return and in so doing free his people from all the tyrannical rule they experienced. And then himself reign with benevolence and justice in their midst, as Isaiah also prophesies, from this time forth, even forevermore. And so Zechariah is now singing, and even himself prophesying about that day now clearly on the horizon. Listen again, verses 69 to 71 of Zechariah's song, there He sings, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And then in verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. For the attentive Jewish listener to Luke and to Zechariah's song, their minds would have immediately gone all the way back to the greatest redemptive act by God on behalf of his people to date. Also, after 400 years, under oppression in Egypt, when God's people heard that God was raising up a redeemer in Moses to deliver them from Egypt in Exodus 4, we read, and the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, And that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their head and worshipped. And worshipped. 400 years. God visiting his people. Redemption. Salvation from enemies. God remembering his oath to Abraham. And also the goal in verse 74 where it says, Being delivered from the hand of our enemies, Zechariah says, So that we might serve him without fear. If you recall, that's what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, this is why he's to let my people go, that they may serve me. This is Exodus language. Zechariah is speaking now of a second. (laughs) And dare we say, even as hard as God's people could have imagined, a greater Exodus this time. 
And just as the result of that first exodus was that God came to dwell right in the midst of his people to be with them, God is committing to returning again, to be with his people. Even as they navigate through and stumble through and walk through darkness, through trial, through wilderness. My friends, that is the hope of Emmanuel's incarnation. That in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the fallenness, in the midst of the sinfulness, in the midst of the confusion and trials and wilderness of this life, of our lives, God comes near to be with us, his people, in the middle of all of that. Our hope, therefore, is not that everything will work out necessarily the way we might like. There are, in fact, no guarantees that things will change prior to Jesus' return the second time when he does finally finish his work of recreation and when he does complete his task of making all things new. However, it does mean, as the angel Gabriel told Mary, that with God, all things are possible. And so true hope lives as if all things with God are possible, (laughs) while at the very same time knowing that we are not guaranteed that all the broken things in our lives will change this side of Jesus' return. The hope is his presence with us in the midst of it. And that can be a hard place to live, honestly. The reality of that tension. The tension that, yes, with God all things are possible. At the very same time, there's no guarantee. But it's in that tension where we actually experience the genuine hope that God offers And that's what Zechariah urges us to cling to in verses 78 and 79. That is, the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. You see, the comfort of true redemptive biblical hope is not that God immediately removes the valley of the shadow of death nor even that he immediately removes us out of the valley of the shadow of death. But rather that as the good shepherd that he is, he actually comes near to us, visits us, walks with us as we wait through the darkness and through the valley of the shadow of death. Now let me also add this. Sometimes as good Christians... Sometimes we might be tempted to think that it's somehow super spiritual to not be honest about the fallenness of this world. (laughs) That somehow living either as if things are just not that bad or that somehow we are above being affected by them. But my friends, that mentality has seeped into the church from a Greek philosophy called Stoicism. (laughs) It's not, does not come from the Bible. (laughs) To live as if everything is not that bad 
when both your experience and the Bible says that it, that it really is, <laughs> sin has done that much damage, is to actually diminish the grandeur of God's great plan of redemption. In fact, the Bible actually invites us to honestly voice our cares and concerns before God and even demonstrates how and gives numerous examples. They're called laments. <laughs> and whereas complaint and cynicism only poison our hearts and our faith, lament is different. Because biblical lament actually holds on to hope in the midst of the darkness. Lament guards our heart from becoming cynical or jaded because, after all, the opposite of redemptive hope is not doubt, but cynicism. (laughs) And so if we don't learn how to lament, we will breed cynicism in our hearts. It will seep out in how we talk about this world and others in it who don't yet know Jesus as Savior and as Redeemer. So what is the basis for Zechariah's message of hope here. Because there are pseudo types of hope, optimism, wishful thinking. But that's not what Zechariah is talking about here. He has a message of hope that actually has a foundation. Listen to the language in the following parts. In verse 70, he says, as he, that is God, spoke by the mouth of his prophets. Verse 72, to show the mercy he promised to our fathers. Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God's promises, God's covenant, God's oath, ultimately the basis and foundation for true hope is God's very own character and his reputation that he has demonstrated in space and time. He is worthy to be trusted because of. Zechariah is basing this song and strong posture of hope in the fact that God had proved himself faithful in the first exodus and therefore he could be trusted now. Now as we're drawing to the end here, perhaps <laughs> like an attentive Jewish listener of Zechariah's day, you might be thinking, but wait a second. What about the very reason why God's people had been exiled in the first place? Our first human parents, Israel, all of humanity for that matter. What about the whole sin thing (laughs) that got us in this mess to begin with? Doesn't the sin issue have to be dealt with so that Yahweh can dwell and be with us as his people? I'm glad you thought that. (laughs) I'm glad you asked. Because Zechariah addresses that as well. He declares to his own infant son in verses 76 and 77, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. God is going to finally and ultimately deal with the sin issue (laughs) through Emmanuel, through Jesus. But the most shocking thing of all, (laughs) something that not even Zachariah could have wrapped his head around, 
was that this God, who has been this faithful, who is now doing something about the sin issue, will actually offer himself as the very sacrifice necessary to ensure his presence with his people, with you, with me, by faith in his son Jesus for all eternity. And then when he rises again, Paul has something extraordinary to say in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul speaks of the kingdom of this Emmanuel, now incarnate in the person of Jesus, speaks of Jesus reigning over all. Again, as we said last week, albeit in a different way than how all previous kings have reigned. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 also proclaims that even our last enemy is destroyed through Jesus' death and resurrection. And that is death itself. Death itself, our last enemy, is also destroyed. And so the ultimate hope for the believer, for the follower of Jesus, is not that somehow we get beamed simply out of here to some spiritual world, but rather that death itself, we will live in the new heavens and the new earth where we experience death being destroyed. Our bodies are wasting away, yes, but it's not the end of the story. In the resurrection, the life, the death, the resurrection tells us is objective, an event in space and time that one day Jesus will completely make all things new, including our own bodies. (laughs) Next Saturday, we'll have an opportunity to literally be heralds (laughs) of this hope and this good news to our neighbors when various groups will be carol singing. Some of us will actually be leaving some material behind to introduce folks to New City. But the good news we're going to be singing about, as much as I love you as New City, is not New City. (laughs) The good news is that there is hope because of Emmanuel's incarnation for this life and the next. So I encourage you, if you are the type of person (laughs) that gets intimidated by the act of having to have a conversation with a complete stranger, which is very common reality for the majority of human beings, let's just be honest, but at the very same time, your harsh desire is that others would come to know the true redemptive hope and salvation that Jesus offers, What a better opportunity. (laughs) When else, when else would your neighbor actually put up with you singing (laughs) in front of their house? When else would a neighbor, a complete stranger, be an audience to hearing the good news of the redemptive hope that Emmanuel's incarnation offers? And at Christmas to sing carols. I invite you, be a part of that if you're able. But even if you can't make that, may this Advent season be a time to remember, to remind ourselves of the redemptive hope that we have because of Emmanuel's first incarnation. Even as we wait with expectant hope for his second, his return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We thank you and celebrate 
even in the midst of a broken and fallen world that we navigate, that Jesus, you're coming, you're being sent by your Father to come and to live and to die, to rise again. You did it that we no more may die, as we sang earlier in that Christmas carol. Help us to be reacquainted during this Advent season as we prepare to celebrate Christmas. That Jesus, you have come near. God, you have come close to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that one day, Jesus, you will return and you will make all things new. Captivate our hearts with that hope, I pray this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen.